uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter number 16. This is the last chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians, so uh, we're going to conclude here today. Thank you for being patient. Of course, we should be patient as we uh, persevere through God's Word, right? It's inspired and given to us as an account of who, who he is. And uh, so next week we'll begin a new study and we're going to start in the book of Hebrews and we're going to think about the theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. So for the next while we'll be going verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. And I'd encourage you to be, begin reading there, reading Hebrews and uh, let the uh, scripture inform you so that you are thinking through the context of what we'll see. First Corinthians chapter 16 as we uh, conclude this uh, study. The scripture says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I've, as I've given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, which is, by the way, where Corinth is. What he's saying is I'm coming to you there in Corinth. But it may be that I will remain even uh, spend time, winter with you, that you may send me on my journey uh, wherever I go. But I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Therefore let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with the holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Father, thank you for the scripture. Thank you for the great gift it is to us to give us uh, clarity, to give us a timeless word, a truth that has come straight from your heart and mind to us, that you've sustained generation after generation so that we don't have to rediscover 
invent truth, God. You've given us an accurate record of your heart through, through people and their experiences. And we pray that you'll work in our experience today and speak to us from your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I studied this week, one of the uh, primary things I noticed about this passage was how often that Paul touched on the friendships that had developed in his life as he uh, traveled as a missionary. He was a pastor, missionary, church planter, and one of the things that I noticed is that he frequently in closing mentions the relationships that had developed in his own experience and really the relationships with the people at Corinth. As we've studied the book of 1 Corinthians, one of the things that you notice is that sometimes, in fact, frequently he takes a tone of correction with them, doesn't he? He's, he's kind of uh, in their face and telling them this is out of order and it needs to be corrected. And so even though he was friends with the uh, people in this congregation, also it was evident that he was willing to confront error. And we, we see that. We see that it, uh, at times he's confrontational with them. But when you, he closes this out, the overwhelming sense that you get is that he's speaking to a group of people with whom he has formed deep friendships. And that's awesome. Uh, we, you know, when we decided that God was leading us into a new uh, ministry path, I can tell you that one of the things that mattered to me was the idea of having friendships, the idea of uh, being connected to people that uh, I've shared before, like our previous ministry was itinerant in a sense because w there were 36 congregations in three counties that, so, you know, a lot of times I preached and helped in churches, but sometimes our responsibility was just to visit and connect and, and to help meet needs that churches had. But I, I shared that it felt like we were everywhere and nowhere. That's how it felt to me. It's like we're everywhere and nowhere. Like there's not really, we were part of a congregation, a church family, but it didn't feel like it was ours because we couldn't be there all that frequently. And I know a lot of people, but for me and uh, Frankie, as we prayed through like, God, how are you leading in our life? One of the compelling things to me was I wanted friends. I wanted relationships that mattered and that were constant and so it was a big deal to me and it is a big deal and now a year later one of the things that is helpful to me is to be in a place where I know you better I see you every week or most weeks I want to see you every week but you can see that in this congregation is relationships are, are big and Paul brings that out and highlights it. And so what I want us to think about in this passage as we close out the book of 1 Corinthians and our study together is gospel friendships. What is it that God is doing in our life? And how does, what, how, what does it look like to be a friend? You know, sometimes friends uh, will tell us the truth that even if it's difficult without blowing us out of the water. We need friends like that. And the passage helps us understand what authentic friendship looks like, why we need it, what it looks like, and how that matters, and how friends behave. So I think of Paul as a friend to this group of people. Even though he's a leader, he's more than that because he's been with them. And he, he knows them, and he knows them through each other. But one of the things that we see in this passage, and we've talked about generosity a lot already in our uh, service today, 
But friends fan the flames first. Friends fan the flames of generosity for others. In other words, they model it and they try to help you to think about what does it look like in my life to be a generous person. He starts out talking to them about a need. There was uh, the issue of persecution to the Christians who were in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem faced unusual persecution, and some of that was because of the nature of Christianity, that it grew out of Judaism, but when Jesus came on the scene, that was the end of some of the practices of worship that had, had gone on for them for millennia. Over and over again, they had had these routines of worship, but now Jesus, we're going to see this in Hebrews, he comes on the scene and he says, I am the conclusion of all of the things that that was pointing to. It all has come to its conclusion in me. And so that introduced for them conflict and confrontation with people that were, were rejecting Jesus. They had accepted and received Jesus, the people in Jerusalem, and yet... Many of their peers and many of their family and many of their friends stood in opposition to them. So persecution was occurring. In our country, we think of persecution as having our feelings hurt, you know. But for them, it was more than their feelings being hurt. They were unemployed. They were ostracized, alienated from family, and arrested. You know, you've don't really hear of that kind of thing happening in our country. But in their situation, people were experiencing not soft persecution, but violent, murderous persecution. The kind of persecution that eventually, for a lot of people that were living in Jerusalem, they moved. They left uh, Jerusalem because it was intense. And the book of Acts tells you they were scattered everywhere. And so when Paul writes to these friends, he talks to them about their practice of generosity. Here's what we know if you read 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In 2nd Corinthians, you find out that they needed to be nudged into the practice of generosity. They were talking about doing something they never did. Have you ever done that? You have good intentions. But the good intentions never become actions. And for them, that's what was occurring. The good intentions never became actions. And so Paul writes to them and he says, we're going to come and we're going to prompt you. He says, but I don't want you to take up this collection while I'm there. I want you to go ahead and do it. And so he gives them specific directions about how you in Corinth who are not experiencing the same sort of violent persecution and the loss of income can make an investment into the life of these saints in Jerusalem who are experiencing that kind of persecution. And so he says these are the things that you should do. And like I said, it's neat. I love how things dovetail sometimes in the Spirit's uh, providence to us. And we've already heard about in Second Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 how the Bible says that the way giving should look in the life of a believer, the way generosity ought to look is that it reminds us that God owns everything and you are the manager of it. I think about that, you know, that I work, you know, I have a job, you have a job, most of you, and you're earning, and out of that earning, you're building a life. You're buying a home, perhaps, or an automobile, or whatever it is, but the Bible says all of it belongs to God. All of it's his. The earth is the Lord's and everything that's in it. So he owns it and we steward it. We manage it. 
And one day there's going to be accountability around that. What did I do? Was I a generous person? Did I give to others so that I could be a blessing? Things like this. There's the basket, actually. It's in here right now. But it's got gifts that people thoughtfully uh, drop coins or money or whatever it is you put in there so that we can take it over to a ministry that we know is doing good. We know that it's functioning with compassion and caring for people and people whose uh, their life, they woke up one day and their life was radically different than they expected it to be. And they're thinking through things that trained believers who love them or are trying to help them with. But, you know, we think about generosity. God is giving into our lives things that in the end, it's like, <laughs> I, I think about retirement and that sort of stuff because of my age now. You know, I'll be 60 next year. So you start to think, you know, am I going to be eating beanie weenies? Yeah, I know. It is. I'm old. I, I uh, just work and stuff tells me now, you know. Like I, I told Frankie today, it's like maybe two out of the days of the week I get out of bed feeling like I wasn't in a car wreck yesterday, you know. But one day out here at the end, there's going to be an accounting for what God trusted to us. And I think about that and the uh, possibilities that are around me all the time to be generous, to give, to be thoughtful. And that's what he's saying to them. God owns everything. He trusts you with some of it. And then there's going to be accountability one day for how generous we were. And then also, the, it, giving shouldn't be an afterthought in our life. He tells them how to do it. He says, the first day of the week, lay something up here. You know, it's like uh, someone was sharing about, Cody was, telling me about the youth trip. He's like, it costs $15 a week, basically, something. Is that what it was between now and then? Something like that. It's like, that's thoughtfulness about, like, something kingdom-oriented. Okay, if, if we, what we need to do sometimes is just be practical and say, hey, if this matters to me, then I can take an incremental, you know, approach to how I'm going to be generous. And that's what he told them, just be thoughtful. Put a little bit up first day of the week. When I come by, we'll collect it all and take it to needy people and, and bless them. And, and so it shouldn't be an afterthought how we give in our life. And it should be voluntary with the caveat that one day God's going to hold us accountable. It is voluntary. You know, nobody coerces or makes us sign some statement or anything like that. It's just the idea that because God is a giver, if we're going to be like God, generosity marks what our life is like. But Paul, as a friend to them, fanned the flames of their generosity. But secondly, we think about gospel and friendship. Friends stimulate us without manipulating us. Uh, when you read this passage, you see that <clears throat> he says, when I come, whomever you approve by your letter, I'll send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it's fitting that I go also, they'll go with me. So we, we see that Paul is trying to stimulate without manipulating. He's trying to help them do the right thing, but he does it with the right spirit too. And I, I think that's uh, interesting that he knows these people. And he knows that, you know, like we've already said, sometimes his conversations with them were uh, uh, of a nature that he had to correct them. And it could create tension. You think about that. Sometimes we have to say hard things and speak truth. And, uh, you know, nobody, I think anybody that really likes that is just a sick person. Right? Nobody likes that. 
And I know it had to occur to him like, hey, I love these people. I don't want to alienate them. I'm going to still tell you the truth, but I don't want to alienate you in telling you the truth. And so it, we can see that it, it comes across in the way that he speaks and uh, what he's saying to them. People sometimes need to be prompted to act and to follow through. They certainly did. People sometimes uh, need to often act responsibility and take initiative themselves. That's what maturity looks like, right? A mature person it takes initiative. A mature person assumes responsibility. They go, this is my you know, role. But he prompted them. And a good friend will sometimes help us see the possibilities that maybe we've overlooked. We need good friends in our life. I've, I've said this before, but one thing I notice about relationships is sometimes people are reluctant to tell us the truth. But this, the, the thing is, we need people that will tell us the truth, even if they're reluctant to. And hopefully we've got friendships that are going there. We have somebody in our life that would be willing to... I love... I shared this recently. Charlie Peacock, his, um, he's got an album where he talks about that. Um, if he, he talks about the fact, if my life is going on the rails, is there anybody in my life that would love me enough to tell me that? Or would they just let me go off the deep end? Now, I hope there's somebody in our life that would you know, care enough about us to say, to disrupt us with truth. And, and he's that kind of friend to them. He, he wants to disrupt them with truth and help them to follow through. And to make offers, he, may, he makes offers of help, but without overreaching. He's like, hey, I, if it helps, I'll go with you to Jerusalem. Do you know what happened to Paul when he eventually went to Jerusalem? Do you remember what happened? He, he got, because people in Jerusalem hated him. Because they knew his story. They knew he had become a Christian. They knew that he, he had been arresting believers. But then this person that had been involved in the persecution of the church became a, a part of the church and a preacher. And so in Jerusalem, Paul was hated. For him to say, I'll go to Jerusalem with you, put skin in the game for him. It was, it was a risky proposition. And when he went to Jerusalem, all that happened is he got arrested and, and imprisoned. And it was an ordeal. And when you read Acts, you see what happened. So he's saying, this is the kind of friend I'll be to you. I'm, I'm advising you, but know this, even though he doesn't say it, it's going to cost me if I get involved in this way. I'm willing to do this. That's what friends do. It may cost them, but they're, gonna, they're willing to commit to us. And so, man, we need friends like this. And he's a catalyst, but catalyst aren't just people that tell us what they're to do. They're people that show us what to do. That's what a catalyst is. They're people that will do it with us. The good God kinds of things. They don't just tell us what to do. They go along with us and they do it. And that's what you see Paul's doing. He's like, I'm a, this kind of friend to you, but he, he's willing to invest in them. That's the next part of what I think we see about gospel friendships. Thirdly, is that friends invest in us. They invest in us. So connection is so important. And in the next part of this passage, he says, Now I'll, I'll come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through. But it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. But he's committed to connection. We know that when you read Acts, which is kind of the background for his letter to them, that he spent with them about 18 months. 
And when he was in Corinth, he, he uh, carried on a school of discipleship for people that had come to know Jesus. So, he, But he says, I want to connect with you again. And connection. I think about that all the time. That's what people need. Connection. That's why worship matters. Is because the Bible says that a church is a gathering. We've talked about this before. Facilities matter. You know, we, we're going to uh, exert some energy trying to keep making this facility better. But behind that is just the realization that it's for people. It's for people. And, and people need to be connected to each other and to God. Those are the two basics, I think, in life. Together, the church is a gathering connected together. We need to be connected to each other, but we need to be connected to God. And church is about helping with both those needs that we have. I, was, I read an article I saw uh, on Facebook, I think, in this past week. I'd seen it before, and then I, I took the time to read it. And it was talking about how people are leaving uh, friendly churches because they don't have friends. So it said they're leaving friendly churches over the issue of friendlessness. Uh, talked about the fact that they didn't have really friends. And one of the anchoring realities of the gospel is how it ought to create transcendent relationships. You know, I think about that. The fact that we could meet people, and some of you, you know, didn't live in Effingham your whole life. We've lived here since 98. But, you know, before that we were in part of a church in Augusta. But I, what I find is that there, once you know people, I could bump into any of those Christians I've known any time along my journey, and there's a commonality that it, nothing can mess up. And that commonality is that we all have Jesus in us, right? I mean, I've, and some of you have too, but traveled to other parts of the world all over the place and met brothers and sisters that instantly you had the most important thing in common. And, and I think that's what he, he's showing us. But the connection that we have needs to be meaningful. And uh, one of the things, we, we had our first on-ramp class last week. And we, you know, it was material that was already here that um, we just abbreviated a little bit. But used all of the ideas that were present. One of them is so wise, it says, a fully mature a Christian is a person who has friends at church, or a, a person who has a healthy, vital kind of church experience has friends at church. That's one of the things. How do we know? What are the markers of whether we're healthy? We have friends at church. There are people that we know and who know us. And here's what I, I've come to ex experience myself. Friendship is costly. If you have true friends, I don't know how many friends you'll have in your life, you know, that are true friends. But I do know that friendship is costly. And here's the, here are some of the costs. It requires you to go outside sometimes. You have to go outside to have friends sometimes. You have to get your face out of your phone sometimes to have friends. You know, it's one of the big deals for us now is like, just go out in public and look at people. You know, are we talking to each other? Not generally. You know, faces in our phones. We're caught up in this um, meta world. Remember we talked about the meta world one time? Friendship is costly because it causes us to have to, you know, change our behavior sometimes. We might get disappointed or hurt. You ever been hurt in a friendship? 
You know, of course, friendship is risky in that way. A guy wrote a book, Matthew Lieberman, called Social. Here's what he said. One out of every four of us is walking around with no one to share our lives with. They've done all these sociological studies. And he said, you know, one out of four people. I posted some of this stuff on Facebook this past week, and a friend who I only know through Facebook spoke up and was like, hey, I'm a single he, he lives over toward Matter, and he's like, I don't have anybody to share life with. Nobody. And he's a lifelong single uh, college professor. He's taught at Bruton Parker, has his uh, degree in like computer science, but he's like, I don't have anybody to share my life with. So, you know how empathy occurs? Face to face. That's where empathy comes from is being able to have face-to-face -face conversations with people and to know each other. And, you know, that article highlighted some of these issues that are really important for what a church is supposed to be, a gathering of people where something significant is occurring, where the gospel leads to something that's transcendent and permanent and, and helpful. That's when we think about what was happening through Paul's life, that's what a church is meant to be. It's meant to be that kind of uh, reality for us. Paul was willing to be diverted into friendship. He's like, hey, I'll, I will, I'm in Ephesus now. I plan to be in Ephesus for the next five months when, or 50 days. When that's over with, I'm coming to you and I may spend the winter with you. He was willing to be diverted into friendship. And his relationships were gospel-centered, as we were saying, which gives them uh, 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 lasting power. He says, but I don't want to come just in passing through. And one reason that friendship is tough is that we need to put, uh, we feel the need to put on a front with people. That's one reason friendship is difficult. It's because it, we have to make people think we've got it together. How are you doing? Oh, man, I'm awesome. Are you really? I mean, sometimes we're not awesome. And friendship is having somebody that I can really say, hey, it's not awesome. It's not great. Uh, Andrew Peterson is one of my favorite Christian recording artists. He, he's got a song about depression that, that says, I'm, afraid, I'm scared if I open myself to be known. I'll be seen and despised and be left all alone. I think about the sentiment in that. He says, I'm scared if I open myself to be known, I'll be seen and despised and be left all alone. And I think that's, you know, the reality for some people is that we think, man, if I'm real with people, probably the end. Probably, probably. But the truth is, whoever you're talking to is as much as a mess of you as you are. That's just the truth. That's why putting on a front is like counterproductive. Is to appear to have it together. And I say the same thing as you. If you ask me how I'm doing, I'm probably going to tell you I'm okay. But the truth is we need friends who we can say to, here's the truth. Not so okay. Not doing great. And of course sometimes you are doing great and that's awesome. And a friend will celebrate that. 
But real friends have real problems, or real people do. Real people are flawed. Many people, you know, uh, we've talked about this, what's an important part of what it, it should be like to be part of a church small group connection. And, um, you know, there are enough ways to do that. I think almost anybody could do that in our church. And the ways that we're deficient in time, we'll work that out. If there's a person or group that uh, it's impossible for you to be in a small group right now, our goal will be in the future to make it possible for you to be in a small group because you need those kinds of connections. But then the truth about small groups is sometimes we're still not getting to the, you know, the real things and we may not feel safe to talk to people, but that's what it ought to be about it. The fundamental level is that church becomes a place where it's safe to talk about what it really means to be a human being trying to work our stuff out with God. Because nobody's doing it perfectly. I'll be in Ephesus at least 50 days, Paul says, after the resurrection until Pentecost. He communicates expectations. That's important. I think about that in marriage. That's important in marriage, to communicate expectations and to say, you know, here's kind of what's going on, and uh, to, to, to be a good communicator. And as Paul talks about uh, this coming and his travels. He says, a great and effective door has been opened for me. And he says, there are many adversaries. But I think about even that, ministry. What is ministry? You know, what is, it, what is being a gospel-focused human? What's that about? The, I love how Jesus put it in Luke chapter 16. He, said, he was talking there about uh, money. And he, he says... Um, What's part of what he was talking about? He, he says, make friends of you, uh, to yourself with unrighteous mammon so that when it fails, you'll be received into everlasting habitations. Luke 16, 9. It's such a fascinating passage. He says, make friends to yourself of unrighteous mammon. He's just talking about money. He says, so that when it fails, is money going to fail one day? Is wealth going to fail one day? Have you ever seen a hearse pull in a U-Haul? Isn't that what they say? No, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Money will fail one day. The objective of money, if it's misused, it's going to be for nothing. Jesus says, take the wealth that I'm entrusting to you, and, and he says, pour it into people so that when wealth fails, you'll have friends that last forever we think about what life after this life is I don't know you know because the Bible says I hasn't seen nor has ear heard neither has it entered the heart of man the things that God holds in store for those that love him I don't know everything that's involved but I do like the idea that Jesus says it's possible to make friends in life using all the material temporary stuff that they'll be your friends forever you can go knock on their door in heaven hey I'm here and they open up, and they're forever friends. That's, I think, exactly what he's saying in that, in that passage. And, and so we, we see that what, you know, what God wants is for us to take away our agenda for relationships and instead replace it with his agenda. Replace it with his agenda. 
fourthly, friends watch out for us. He, he uh, talks about his friend Timothy in verses 10 and following. So Timothy is a timid person by nature. Timothy is a, a probably an introvert by nature. And introverts need friends too. <clears throat> I am not one, by the way. I'm an extrovert. I'm just like my dad. My dad never met a stranger. You had to pull him off of people and say, hey, you're with us. You know, be here with us. But I, I know that there are people who relationships are harder in some regard for them and don't come as naturally. And Timothy was apparently like that. And one thing to uh, love about Timothy is that he went into social situations that were over his head. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say, I'm an introvert, therefore I get a pass. He was still a minister. He still was called into social situations that were over his head, and he did it. But one thing to love about Paul, too, was that he looked out for his introverted friend. He said, I don't know what it was about Corinth that was scary, but something was for Timothy. He's like, I'm going to send Timothy to you, but listen... Look out for him. Be kind to him. Take into uh, account the kind of person that Timothy is. Timothy only has so much social, social energy. I think that's part of what it means to be an introvert. Is like, you're not dealing with exactly maybe the same amount of social energy as some people. It's like, look out for him while he's with you. He's there for the cause of uh, advancing the gospel. Look out for him. So he's looking out for this friend that he, he loves. He's like, God didn't cut him out of the exact same mold as Paul appears to be type A, right? When you read the scripture, I mean, to me, he looks driven. He's the most prominent missionary that we read about. Timothy sort of had to be nudged out the door. And yet, he did it. And Paul says, hey, look out for him. And he, he urges Apollos to go to Corinth. Uh, Corinth. The people at Corinth loved Apollos. He was like a superstar in their eyes. And we, you can kind of see that in the background stuff that we've written. But when Paul says, hey, would you go to Corinth? He's quite unwilling to go at that time. I'm not sure why, but that's what Paul says. He was quite unwilling to go. Did Paul tear him to shreds in front of these people? He didn't, did he? Did he play up the divisiveness that was uh, existed there? We know it existed because you read about it in the first few chapters. That he, the rivalry and the division and how they, some said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. No, he didn't. What he, he did instead is speak well of Apollos even though he wasn't around. And that's what good friends do for us. They are not different around other people. We're not there with them. They hold us up and they support us. That's the, what it means to be a friend. And, and so we see the, these gospel friendships. That a good friend watches out for us. Love always protects, we read in 1 Corinthians 13. Hopes the best, believes the best. Love always endures. And then the passage teaches, fifthly, friends, teach us. He says, keep your eyes open. Hold tight to your convictions. Give it all you've got. Be resolute. That's the message's way of, 
um, paraphrasing those passages. Keep your eyes open. Hold tight to your convictions. Give it all you've got. Be resolute. Sometimes our energy wanes and we lose our grip on what matters the most. I do. Sometimes my energy wanes and I lose my uh, lose sight of what really matters. And we need to be reminded of the need for resiliency and resting in God's ability. I'm thankful once in a while I'll have a conversation with somebody that just reminds me of what really is important. A friend that can say, you know what, you have to get up and be vigilant every day. I don't want to be vigilant every day. But I, I've got friends that will tell me you need to be vigilant today. You need to be vigilant every day. And, and that's what we can see is that Paul says, look, keep being vigilant. We need to be reminded of the need for resiliency. And sometimes our striving can be the opposite of the life of grace. I think about that too. Sometimes we need to have people say, slow down. Slow down and rest in the fact that God's got this. I'm glad to have friends like that too. That will say, stop stressing. Because I'll stress out. And I'll think, I've got to do all this. And I'm glad to have friends that say, no, you don't. Or to read people that say, no, you don't. Stop stressing. Stop trying to do it all. Is that grace? That's not grace. Grace is the fact that God rescued me. Right? He rescued me. And and why? Uh, I don't, I'm just telling you how I am sometimes. It's stress. And, and then you're like, what is all this stuff really true or is it not true? Well, I think it's true. And so consequently, you know, we can rest in, in God and sometimes our striving, my striving is the opposite of grace. And then he shows us that there's a you know, God loves us and love has to be the motive for everything. Not winning. Sometimes we think winning is the motive. No. Not control. Not my agenda. People aren't a means to an end. People aren't objectives or objects to be used. Godly love is self-giving and it considers the needs of others before its own, we see in Scripture. And then we see that friends challenge us, sixthly in this passage. Stephanus is uh, someone who Paul says, this was the first person to come to faith in Christ in the region that you live in. It would be like saying he was the first believer in the coastal empire. He was talking about the region that they live in, Achaia. And he says, they've devoted themselves to the servant, uh, service of the saints, to serve the believers, and, the, and to make sure that the church is vital and flourishing. He says, this is the business in which they are always busy, as one writer put it. And he, he says, therefore, what should you do? How should you relate to people like that? He says, you should submit to them. How do we like the word submit? Not very much, right? It makes us bristle. But here, here is what I think he's trying to help them to get. If there's a rank in Christian community, if there's an order that God observes, he says, here's who's first, the humble servants. You remember how Jesus put it? He said, the first will be what? And the last will be what? 
He says, there is a day when the order that the world observes where everybody that seems to be most powerful, God's going to say, get in the end of the line. And he's going to say to the people that showed up with humility and served and honored him, you get to go first. Go grab your plate. Get in the front of the line. He's just encouraging them to understand there's an order that you aren't always seeing, that God always sees. And he tells them to acknowledge people among them who are serving. Recognize that. That's how all of you ought to be. And it's interesting, I thought, at first when I read this passage, I thought, man, he's, he uh, is putting a smack down on these people when he's talking about Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus. He says, they liked what, uh, they supplied what was lacking from you. And I thought, man, he's, but no, what he, he really is saying is, they brought a little bit of Corinth to me. Friendship is important. All of you can't be here, but listen, you, these guys came and it really mattered. Friendship is important. And so, he, he highlights that. Last part of this passage, last thing we're going to see in 1 Corinthians. Uh, friends stick with us even when we aren't at our best. He, he closes out the passage and he says, <clears throat> we get a sense of the way, for one thing, the early church gathered here. He talks about Aquila and Priscilla and the fact that the church met in their home. That's how the early church looked. They were meeting in someone's home. And the modern church has to constantly contend for that kind of connection. It uh, could easily, the connection could go MIA in our big room. They weren't meeting in a big room. They were meeting in somebody's living room or around a table. It was different. So uh, what we do isn't wrong, but it is different. And the only way that we can contend for, we'll have, we will have to contend for the kind of connection that they had because it could be lost in our form of uh, contemporary worship. And he, he tells them, greet each other with the holy kiss. Ew. Like, no, please, no. Maybe you feel differently. But he, 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 that's a... That was their practice. It was what they did. But what do you have to do to kiss somebody? You have to get close, don't you? You have to be in their space, in their bubble. Now, I know COVID has changed the way we feel about bubbles, and, you know, it's okay. But in, in this sense, the scripture is saying, like, you're going to have to pull in close here, folks. You're going to have to know each other. That when it thinks helps us think about gospel and friendships, that's what it's saying. Is that we shouldn't be a mystery to each other. We should pull in close. And of course that you know, it takes effort on each other's part. And he says something really interesting. All of a sudden here he says, If anybody doesn't love Jesus, let him be accursed. Isn't that a weird thing to throw in there? It's the word anathema. Have you ever heard that word before? He says anathema. I told Frankie this yesterday like she cared. Anathema maranatha. That's what he says right here. Maranatha. You've heard that too, right? What does it mean? Come Lord, come Lord. Anathema is the idea of a curse. 
He says, if anybody doesn't love Jesus, let him be accursed. Here's what I think why this matters. The kind of love he's talking about can't be faked. If somebody says, I love Jesus, but they don't love people, he says, no, that's the kind of claim of loving Jesus that should be cursed because there's no real love of Jesus that doesn't turn into the love for, uh, love for people. He says, that's messed up. It's a lack of uh, this kind of transformative love explains so many things in church. That's why he says that that should be a cause for cursing. And grace, he, he closes out by talking about grace and love. Grace, without it, this whole deal degenerates into something useless. You remember, and I thought about in the Old Testament, manna. You remember God gave the people manna from heaven? They were hungry. He gave them uh, this wafer. And you, you know what manna, the word means, what is it? <laughs> That's so funny to me. Like, what is this? But they, God gave them bread from heaven to eat. What happened if you left it overnight? Got full of worms and stank, right? What happened if you tried to pick it up on the Sabbath? Got full of worms and stank. I think it's, that's what the church is like without grace. It's like full of worms and stinky. Grace is the, C.S. Lewis was in a group of people who were talking about world religion, and they said, what distinguishes Christianity from everything else? He says, that's easy, grace. Unmerited kindness of God, God's free gift to us in Jesus, and love because the Bible says uh, Love binds everything together. Proverbs 18.24, some friends play at friendship, but a true friend sticks cl closer than one's nearest kin. If the gospel does anything, it ought to create transcendent, transform relationships. And if it's not doing that, something's wrong with our practice of community. We, we can have the theory down, but not the practice. We know what it's supposed to mean, but not the. It, it's not getting fleshed out that way. Allen Iverson is a basketball player. Anybody know who Allen Iverson is? Superstar. He's got this famous rant about practice. Practice. We're not talking about a game. We're talking about practice. But practice is what matters. A lot of times we have the right theory, but we don't have the practice. There's a quote that I saw I'm going to conclude with. It's the, uh, the next thing here. Rosaria uh, Butterfield has written a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Practicing radical, radically ordinary, ordinary hospitality in our post-Christian world. That's a long title. That's like a Puritan title. But she says... Are Christians victims of this post-Christian world? No. Sadly, Christians are co-conspirators. We embrace modernism's perks when they serve our own lust and selfish ambitions. We despise modernism when it crosses lines of our precious, precious moralism. Our cold and hard hearts, our failure to love the stranger, our selfishness with our money, our time in our home mean we are guilty in the face of God of withholding love and Christian witness. I mean, that's profound. It basically says, like, we have forgotten Luke 16, 9, that God says, open up your home. Use what I'm giving you. It's a tool. Uh, discipleship isn't evolving. If it's not evolving into something costly, that connects others to Jesus. 
then it's probably not authentic discipleship. And the Bible is saying to us in this part of it that the gospel is going to cause us to have to be uncomfortable sometimes. It's going to affect our friendships, or it's intended to. It's intended to give us friendships. And it's intended to create, overcome the problem of loneliness, uh, give us a sense of like, hey, I belong. I don't just believe something. I belong to, to people who are my family. We're going to have a time of commitment this morning as the folks are coming to help us to sing. And as, as we do that, if there's a need that you have to respond today, and invite you to do that. Of course, this is all about Jesus and who he is. And so we're inviting you to a relationship with him too, to follow him in baptism too, if that's what you need to do today. Let's pray. God, thank you for the scripture. Thank you for its potency and how it points out to us what you mean life to be like. And I pray that you'll help us now as we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.